Turn with me to John chapter 16 uh, for Kevin in the New Testament, right? <laughs> and verse 23, verse 23, and we're going to read to 33. So John 16, 23 to 33. Let us stand as a church. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and you have no need for anyone to question you, but by this we believe that you have come from God. And Jesus answered and said, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I will overcome the world. Pray. Father, uh, these are great words. Um, all your scripture, as we know, is inspired by you, and profitable for teaching, and training, and correction. And we pray now, God, that if uh, we have anything to learn from you, that we'd learn it today. If we have anything to be encouraged in, we, we get encouraged from you today. If we have to be changed in any of our thinking, because we've had something wrong, that we're, that we're changed today. So we're looking to uh, just be conformed to your image, and we're grateful for your love for us. In Christ's name, amen. So before we jump into the main part of the text today, I want to remind you of where we left off last week. And you'll remember that uh, the disciples were in a great time of worry, and they're quite anxious. And the reason it was that Jesus had made it plain to them that he was going to depart from them because the time for the cross had come. Now from the, the disciples' point of view, this was very hard to take. Um, they not only loved him and didn't want to lose him, but they'd given up everything to follow him. I mean, they left their old original jobs. You know, they left their jobs as fishermen and tax collectors and so on. And they'd left these jobs and to follow him. And they'd sacrificed time with their families. They'd left their families to, to go around the land with Jesus for three years in Israel to, to uh, learn from him. And they followed him because they believed that he was the Messiah. Now with the prospect now of losing him, all their hopes in him as the Messiah were being dashed. And now they were st stricken with grief. So Jesus left them with a message of hope. He told them that not only their grief would be temporary, that it, it was going to be necessary. And only the disciples would fully understand this once they understood the implications of the cross. Because this temporary grief would be turned into their greatest source of joy. And remember he used this analogy of a pregnant woman who 
in the, in the short term has anguish and pain and grief over the event of bearing a child, but in, when she goes through it, in the long term she produces joy because of the, the agony she went through, this produces joy and they have this loving child to celebrate. Likewise, the cross is going to be a time of, of uh, pain and anguish in the short term, but when they understood it would produce this huge joy in them. And we looked last week then at the implications for us as well that understanding as Christians how the, the, the source of the joy for us comes from the cross and what that looked like. So the cross was foundational to the, the joy of the disciples and Jesus made it clear to them that that was true. However, he continues here in verse 23 and 24 to tell us and tell them that there was another avenue by which their joy would be made full. Let's read that together. It says, In that day you will not question me about anything, but truly I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And until now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you'll receive so that your joy may be made full. Notice here that the joy, the joy that was to be made complete in them was to become through prayer. It was to come through a prayer life. And I thought, well, if it was important for them, for their joy to be made full and complete, through prayer, it's probably important that we as a church understand what kind of prayer that they were asking for that was going to make their joy complete so that we can apply it to our lives so we know how to make our joy complete. Because our joy comes from the foundation of the cross, but it also would come from prayer as well. So I'm going to do something different today, uh, just focus mainly on these two verses because of the importance of the subject. But we, we can talk about the other verses, if you like, in our, in our dialogue. However, uh, verses, verses 25 through 33, we've covered uh, these topics in, in other sermons uh, throughout the Gospel of John. So there'll be nothing new to you, actually, in these verses. Um, however, I do want to talk about this aspect of prayer. So the first thing I want to you to notice is that this idea of asking the Father for anything in Jesus' name was really important to him. How do we know? This is the third time he's mentioned this. It's the third time he said this to them. Now remember, this is events at the Last Supper. So he's at the Last Supper. Now, and every time, the, sorry, the three times he's told them to ask the Father for anything in his name has occurred all on that same evening. This is not teaching that he told them over the course of three years. He's told them this three times in the same night. Just look with me quickly at 1413. 1413 whatever you ask in my name that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son if you ask anything in my name I will do it look at verse chapter 15 verse 16 1516 you do not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This I command you. So again, we have this as a repetition of the same thing three times in the same evening. So what did Jesus mean by praying in his name? Well, we're a pretty smart church. I mean, we, uh, not to say that other churches aren't smart, <laughs> but when we, when we think of asking for something in Jesus' name, we know what he's not saying, right? We know he's saying you don't use Jesus' name as a formula where you tack his name on to the end of a prayer to ensure success. So here's an example. I have a sore knee. So this idea that if I pray, Lord, I have a sore knee, would you heal me, has less 
effect or power than if I say, Lord, I have a sore knee, will you heal me in the name of Jesus? So it's not adding the name of Jesus to ensure healing or ensure victory. Or the same thing with a new job. You know, you pray with, for a new job and you don't say it in Jesus' name, and then the second time you say it in Jesus' name, and all of a sudden there's power behind that. That's not what Jesus is saying, although there are certain teachings out there that believe this is absolutely necessary for receiving what you want. But, so we know this as a church. We've been around the block long enough. So what did he mean then, if that's not what he meant? Well, what he did mean by this was, was simple. He's basically saying that if you pray in, pray in my name in a way that is consistent with my will and my character, I can assure you that God will give you what you want. In terms of, he will give you, what, he will give you something that you will receive. And your joy will be made full in that. So if you pray in accordance with the nature of Jesus, in the accordance with his will, in accordance with his character, that God will give you the prayer request that you ask for. Now we know in, in 1 John 5.14, he actually gives us a clue of this. He says in 5.14, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So again, the key to a successful prayer life in which God hears and answers your prayers if you're praying in accordance with His will. Again, this is very different than the kind of slot machine Jesus where you, you pray for things that you desire and then you get your will and then you pull the lever and all of a sudden in the name of Jesus you get them. He's saying if you pray in accordance with the will of God and the will of Christ, then you will get the prayer request answered in a definite way. So I thought, why not go into some of the areas in which are kind of things that Jesus would, would want to pray for. Let's talk about some of the categories in which are within God's will. And again, if you, you might know as a church, well, it's obvious you don't treat Jesus like a slot machine, but if I were to say to you, well, how do you know the kind of things to pray that Jesus prayed? How do you know what's within his will? You might think, well, as a Christian, I should know these things, but you might be stumped to come up with the categories of life. So I've got three or four categories here to help you understand the kind of prayers that Jesus would pray and the kind of areas in which um, would be within the will of God. And you can be promised if you pray in these areas that your joy will be made complete and he will hear and answer these prayers. So let's look at category number one and we'll have to go outside of this text to, to find these. Actually, before I get into that, let, let me just say one more thing. Um, this instruction to pray the name of Jesus, by the way, was definitely new for the disciples. It was definitely new. Here's why. When the disciples would want to ask Jesus, or sorry, ask God for anything before Christ came along, they would go directly to him without involving Christ. Remember, they asked Jesus, how do we pray? He says, our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. So the, Jesus taught them, Here's how you pray. You go directly to the Father and you ask for things. As a Jew, when they would pray, that would make sense. In the Old Testament, they would go to Father, the Father, Yahweh, and ask directly. And they wouldn't involve Christ. Now, when it came to the disciples making requests of Jesus, they did not involve God either. If they wanted, say, like uh, something to eat, they wouldn't say, uh, Jesus, I'm going to go talk to God about giving me something to eat, and then I'm going to ask you for it. They'd go directly to Christ with their needs. So as a Jew, they'd go directly to God without involving Christ in their prayer. 
or in the physical presence, they'd go to Christ without talking to God about what they wanted from Him. Now the shift, this is a shift in their prayer lives. It's going to shift. He's going to, Jesus tells him here, you still go to the Father to ask, make your requests, but you're going to come in my name when you bring these requests. You're going to bring forward to the Father prayers that are going to be in accordance with my nature and the things that I would desire in your life. And when they prayed this way, it would result not only in answered prayer, but joy. So let's look at some of these categories. And these are our lessons as well. The first area that we can pray for that's within God's will and the nature of Christ is more workers in the kingdom of God. More workers in the kingdom of God. Uh, after you finish writing, turn with me to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Luke 10, 1. Luke 10, verse 1, it says, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of them to every city and, and the place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Beseech is the same word for ask or pray. So he tells the 70, sorry, he tells them, yeah, he tells them, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So there's lots of people unsaved. There's lots of people that need to know about Jesus, but the laborers are few. There's not a lot of people out there that are, that are laborers or workers. Therefore, pray for him to send more laborers into the harvest. Now that's, uh, that's incredible because God's primary way of getting his message out there and saving people is through using people. So he could do supernatural signs through visions and dreams and audible voices, but he says, my primary way of getting people saved in this world is through other people declaring the message. And I know this for absolute fact from everyone here who's been come to know the Lord, that none of you have come to know the Lord through a vision, dream, or audible voice of a direct communication with God. Every single one of you have come to faith through a relationship of someone teaching you the gospel message. Every one of you, myself included. And Romans speaks to this. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? It is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, preacher doesn't necessarily mean someone like myself who holds that office, although it does. Any of you who proclaim the truth of God are, in, in that instance, preachers. So how does Jesus do this? When he goes to answer these, how does God answer this prayer? Like when you pray to him, Lord, would you send out more people into, the, into, the, into this world to proclaim your truth so more people get saved? How does he do it? Well, it's not stated in this text, but we do know that when you pray in this way, he's completely involved. He's working in people's lives so that they will respond to the gospel truth. So here's how it might apply. When you come to the Lord in prayer, you bring individuals, even within our Genesis House community, to be more active in their faith. See, being a worker, being a laborer, you're already a Christian. But God recognizes that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're a laborer. 
you can you could be somebody that's actually very quiet in your faith very private in your faith and so therefore there's been no sharing of gospel truth with anyone around you and so what we're praying for is that all of us here if we're private or quiet that God is saying we're praying for everyone here to get active God wants every single one of you in here and including myself to be a laborer he wants you to be a laborer he wants you to be proclaiming the truth to people and trying to convince them that the Lord they need the Lord in their lives to save them from sin and to, to teach them how to live in this world. But, but I mean, just because we have, we've been saved doesn't mean that we're actually effective in being a laborer yet. And so we come to God and asking Him to bring individuals within our Genesis House community and within Okotoks community and other churches and across the nation and the world to be more active in their faith. So we're praying for more workers in the kingdom. And so maybe, maybe the reason why people aren't workers and laborers is because of their time. Maybe they've created in their lives a, a thing where they're out of balance in time. It's all dedicated to work. And so there's no time to even have opportunities outside of work to, to share the message with their neighbors or so on. Or maybe even within the work, they're so busy doing their work that they're not looking for open conversations within their workplace to have these conversations. Or perhaps it's pursuit of leisure. I know, we, I know it's camping season and we're all entitled to holidays, but maybe, maybe some of us pursue leisure too much as a way of life. And so we're never, we're always looking to like ple- make ourselves have, have all the pleasures of life and we're not actually seeking out to be sacrificial and towards relationships towards others. It could be insecurity, just fear that we're going to get rejected, fear that we don't know enough, and so on and so forth. And so all these things are making us are reasons why we, for which we are not a laborer in the kingdom of God. And so when we come to the Lord, we pray like earnestly and pray crazy that He gets a hold of everyone's life and creates circumstances in lives where they move from those categories into being faithful laborers for the kingdom of God. The second lesson, in terms of areas we can pray that's in accordance with Jesus or within His will, is that we strengthen the faith of others. We pray for him to strengthen the faith of others. And I think specifically in areas of temptation. In areas of temptation. Let's, uh, since we're in Luke, turn to Luke 22. After you've written your stuff down. So Luke 22, 31. And turn there with me. We're going to see Jesus here praying for someone else, praying for Peter, for his faith to be strengthened. Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have once turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today, uh, will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Notice this. Jesus says, pray for Peter prior to his denial that he, his faith would not fail after the denial. Right? He didn't want him to come to a place that after he was tempted and failed in it, that he would just crumble and fall away from God. He wanted him to, to be restored and then continue to um, persevere in his faith. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. Because Jesus in his private prayer life is approaching the Father and saying to him, 
I would I'm asking you, God, that when Peter denies me, that when he that his faith will will prevail and persevere after all this, after all the, the, the emotional heartache he's going to go through this. And this is one of the areas we first learn that's important to Jesus in faith. It's the perseverance of a believer's life amidst amidst temptation. Perseverance of a believer's life in the midst of temptation. Now, this is great for application. See, if we see a brother or sister in our church community or outside of our church community that we know are Christians are struggling in an area, we can pray for God to get involved and even create circumstances so that that person will stand firm in their faith. So Peter didn't even know that he was going to do this. I mean, he thought he was invincible. And you might know Christians in your life right now where you're watching their lives and you can see areas of temptation that they're going to head down and you know they're heading down that path and you can see it, but they may not even see it for themselves. But you and your wisdom can see it because people who are in the midst of it don't often see their own, their own areas of struggle. And so you notice this and so you earnestly go to God in prayer, praying for their perseverance of their faith and that they'll have strength to endure amidst the temptations they face. And I want to talk to you about the way uh, Dan, Dan and I often pray, um, because here's how I think it might look in these cases, in these instances when you pray for people. We often do what we call building a case before God. Building a case before God. And some people in certain theological circles won't like, won't like to hear what I'm about to say, <laughs> but this is the way I see. I, I actually believe that we can put challenges before God and, some, and, and that we can tell Him how to to operate in, in life, and he actually will take our ideas and our cues and run with them. I'll give you an example. Moses did it. Here's how Moses built a case before God to change his mind, to get involved in a way that normally wouldn't, he would normally wouldn't have. In Numbers 14, the Israelites are grumbling, and they, 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 they've been complaining against God for, for 40 years in the desert, and they, and they basically say to God, or they tell Moses, we wish we died in Egypt. It's been so brutal in the wilderness, we wish we died in Egypt instead of being with you in the wilderness. And God said to Moses, you know what? I've had it with these guys. They're dead. Killing them all. I can't stand these guys anymore. They just complain, complain, complain. And I'm smiting the whole lot of them. They're all gone. You know what Moses does? He doesn't do this. God, please don't. Please don't. He doesn't do that. He comes before God and builds a case. And here's what he says to him. I'm paraphrasing it. You can read it in Numbers 14. But he says, Lord, if you do this, your reputation is going to be brutal amongst the nations. Because everyone knows you redeemed Israel with a purpose to bring them to the Holy Land. And if you don't do this and follow through in your promises, and you're not able to make good in your promises, yeah, you're going to lose, um, your, your reputation is going to tank amongst the nations like Egypt and so on and so forth. So based on your reputation, I ask you not to do this because if you do this, you're gonna, your name's going to basically plummet amongst the, the, the nations that aren't part of Israel. You know what God does? He listens to Moses and in verse 20 says this, I have pardoned them according to your word. I've pardoned them according to your word. In other words, if Moses didn't say that, if Moses didn't plead to them, they would have, God would have continued through. Isn't that great? Moses is building a case and the reputation of God. And God says, I've done it according to your word. So why can't we come to the Lord in this way? And this is just theoretical, but Lord, you know, I, I've noticed that John is heading down a really dangerous path. 
He's a Christian, there's no doubt he's about as a Christian, but he's starting to hang around a lot of his old friends that were, um, were, were part of the reason why he was in trouble in the first place. I mean, all they do is like get drunk every weekend and they're out carousing and they're always in trouble. And uh, I noticed that he's, he's getting this pull to want to be with these people again. Lord, I want to try to build a case before you and I would like you to, like, I'd like you to put someone in his life right now to, to speak a word into his life. To, to wake up his eyes to something that he's in danger. Or I would like you, maybe he's listening to something on the radio and he hears someone speaking on the radio and I'd like you to use it in the radio as a way of like convicting them to turn around. Or maybe, Lord, puts, make, make him open a book or put something in front of him in which he will know that he's making other wrong decisions. Or Lord, even if, I mean, this may be a more drastic one, but hey, like if he's going out that night and he knew he's going to get in trouble, like maybe have him twist his ankle on the sidewalk so that when, he, when he's walking, he has to go to the hospital instead of going out that night. Like whatever, you're just building cases. You're asking God to do anything he can to get involved. And this is a way we can pray for our children when we notice they have weaknesses. Every child, whether they're 5 or 17 or 18, think they're invincible. <laughs> And we see, recognize weaknesses in our children, and we pray to God to get involved in our children's lives so that, and build cases so that um, God uh, gets involved and protects our children. The third area we can pray in, that we'd be in accordance with the will of Christ and with uh, God, is the strengthening of our own faith. The strengthening of our own faith. Uh, continue on in Luke 22 with me. Go to verse 39. Uh, he says, And Jesus came out, of the, came out and proceeded as his, was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when Jesus arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter temptation. So they're to pray for themselves and their own faith. And then look at 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So, get this. He tells the disciples to pray for their own faith, and then Jesus turns around and prays for his own faith. He turns around and bows the knee to God and says, Lord, you could tell, like, remove this cup from me. Like, if you're willing, like, he's going through temptation. He wants another way out than just to go through this, this means of dying for sin through the cross. But he says, but he, but he bends his will to the will of the Father. But he is asking God, he's going through a, a real heartache, a real struggle to want to bail in this whole situation of going to the cross. So again, he strength, we can pray for the strengthening of our own faith. Jesus did it for himself. He told the disciples to do it for them, themselves. And here's the thing, you and I know the areas that we struggle in. You and I know the areas that we struggle in. We need to come to the Lord in prayer for victory over those areas and the areas that we seem to lack faith and have lack of strength in our faith. And, we, and if we do that, we're praying according to His will and we know that God hears us and He will do everything He can in His power to answer. He will, he will get involved and answer those prayers. We know, he, we know He's involved when we pray in those ways. So, let's say you're someone who fears rejection. The reason why you don't enter into any spiritual conversation is you just can't handle the loss of losing a relationship or the fear that someone might reject you. You pray like crazy to God that He helps you to strengthen your own faith so you don't fear that. Let's say you struggle with anger, and, and anger is an area in your life that is 
creating an issue, a barrier of faith, and you ask God to get involved in helping with that. Or maybe within a marriage, it's you having a hard time respecting your husband, or as a husband, hard time loving your wife. Or maybe it's an area of forgiveness or whatever. You're asking God to strengthen you in your own faith. And when God hears prayers like that, He loves them, and we know He'll get involved in answering them. And finally, but not lastly, there's a lot more areas than just this, but I just thought I'd give you four. Uh, Unity amongst believers. Unity amongst believers. Turn with me to John chapter 17, verse 20. John 17, 20. He says here, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who, have all, who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Here that you, you notice that the word unity and that they may be one, they may be one. We're gonna get into this in John 17 in the next like you know month or so, so I won't get into it in detail. We'll cover that later, but see that the basic principle is that he wants them to be one. Why would he want that? What's the number one thing the disciples struggled with? Unity. Right? They always had a, a spirit of comparison with one another. That was their that was their biggest problem. They always thought that they were they were always looking for one up to one up each other within the within their group, or in comparison to other people, they had a spirit of comparison. That's why he they said to Jesus, "I want you to call down thunder on the Samaritans because they're they're not as good as we are." And then the, the, the other brothers come and to him and say, Should, "Can one of us sit in your right and your left hand?" When, we, when you come in your kingdom. In other words, we want the positions of power. We don't care about the other ten. We just want to be uh, in the positions of power. So again, unity was their biggest problem, a spirit of comparison. And nothing divides a church quicker than factions and divisions within it. Nothing divides a church quicker than factions and divisions within it. And you think that persecution would do it, right? You'd think, okay, what would, it would destroy a church? You'd think, well, if it was persecuted, it would be destroyed and scattered. Persecution actually is the number one thing that helps a church grow. But what destroys a church very, very quickly is disunity and division within it. And I'll leave you with this PowerPoint from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says here, God has blended together the body. The body being the church, not your body, okay? So being the, the church body. Giving greater honor to the lesser member so that there may be no division in the body but the members may have mutual concern for one another. If one member suffers, everyone suffers with it. If a member is honored, all rejoice with it. See, this, this, we live in a very individualistic culture. Like we think, we think this in our, in our heads. Let's say Callie's really suffering. We think this often in our heads. Well, that's too bad for her, but that doesn't affect me. <laughs> nope, that's the wrong thinking. Don't you see in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if one member suffers, everyone suffers in it. We're all, through the Spirit of God, united as one body. Likewise, if one person in this church is honored and, 
and, it, and it, it's something to celebrate for, we as a church can celebrate in that victory as well. But we are not to think of ourselves as individuals, and that's what's so interesting about our culture, because it's all about me and all about our culture and what I can gain out of it. And God says, no, that creates disunity. What I care about is you're all thinking as one, you're all acting as one, you all care for one another as one, you all hurt as one, and you all celebrate as one. That's what the body of Christ does. So we can pray then that nothing enters into our church that would cause any factions. Nothing enters our church that would cause disunity. And that and ultimately then we, if there was any issues between us, that would mean that we would have to, through the Spirit's conviction, go and make anything right between someone we had disunity with. <laughs> right? So we can pray, Lord, that nothing divides our church. Like our, our specific church, like Genesis House, that we have unity amongst ourselves as a consistent a consistent attribute, but we can also pray uh, within our community that the churches within our community also have the same approach to their ministry. We can pray for this on a national scale, and we can pray for this on a world scale. So you, we can see that if we pray in this one category alone, you could spend up to half an hour in prayer with the Lord just over unity of the church. But we know, because it's so important to Jesus in verses 20 of chapter 17 onward, that when we pray for those things, and we include 1 Corinthians, that that's something that's important to him. So I realize there's a much more in this passage that could be spoken about, but like I said before, we've covered these topics in other sermons. For example, when he says, you know, he says there in 33, these things I've spoken to you that you may have peace in this world. Well, we've talked about peace ex exclusively, right? So I didn't want to repeat the lessons. I, I thought it was really important to, to talk about what it looked like to pray within the will of the Father. And if you didn't know these things before, that now you have an, a different way of approaching God in your prayer lives. Now, it's not that you can't ask for your own, your own personal thing. It's not that you can't ask for God to help you in your back pain or that you can't help, him, you know, help you find a job. Those aren't sinful things. I'm not saying you can't ask them. I'm just saying that if you want God... You, that you will know 100% that when you ask of these things in these categories that you will receive them. You'll receive them. God will do everything in His power to, to act and to, um, to, to answer those prayers for you on your behalf. So when you pray for someone else to have strength in their faith, He's actively involved. He's answering it. When you pray for the unity of the church, He's actively involved. He's answering it, and so on and so forth. Again, because they're all centered around His kingdom and His purposes and will. Now when we pray in those ways, the promise in verse 24 is, Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. See, there's joy in this because when you're praying according to the will of God, you know He hears you. And when you're praying according to the will of God, you know that He's answering them. So when you're praying these things and you can see fruit coming from these things, it brings you joy as you watch these things being answered in your midst. And it brings you joy knowing that you're praying within His will. Uh, I remember doing a, a little uh, presentation years ago at an adult, adult Bible fellowship. And I did a, um, a little 45-minute thing on uh, what, is it to, uh, what is it to be in the will of God. And everybody uh, desires that, right? Everyone's like, when you talk to people about things they're like, well, what's God's will for my life in this area? What's God's will? What's God's will? And what they mean is, what job do I take? Does, what, does he, what's his will for that? Or what, uh, what location do I, what city do I need to move to? Or what school should I go to? 
he does hear you in those things, but he's not necessarily going to answer you with a, with a green light one way or the other. That's not, that's not primarily the way he works. To pray within his will is to pray in these categories, and you know he's 100% involved in those things. Uh, incidentally, after I uh, finished that little ABF uh, class, a woman came up to me and said to me, you know, Andrew, I've been a Christian for, I forget how long, like 20, 30 years, and I've always wondered what the will of God was for my life. And she goes, so thank you for, for showing me the scriptures in which it was listed. And I was thinking in my head, well, yeah, no, they're, they're accessible to you. You can even just use your concordance and look up what's God's will, and you'll be able to find some key areas. But anyhow, the cool thing was is that I also back then mentioned areas that were not typical within the Christian's framework of thinking. And I didn't have these at the time, but I wish I did. But these are, these are areas though we can come to the Lord in prayer and be assured that he's involved in and answering for us.